You're listening to Season Four, Episode Eight. Hello, welcome back to Let's Talk Shop. My name is Trace, and I am your host. I am a business mentor who helps my clients start and grow their wholesale. I currently have three slots left to start work with me one on one for three or six months at the end of January. I will also be running my Let's Talk Sales course, all about selling again in the end of January. The course will open up come uh, mid-January or so, so make sure that you have signed up for the waitlist if you are interested or growing your sales and need some help with how you could do that. We talk all about sales mindset, your sales funnel, and how to manage your sales. And what is important, and sales language, and all sorts of useful things that you probably didn't know that you needed to know when it comes to selling. Today is the last episode of this podcast before Christmas. We'll be back on the 4th of January with another episode. This is actually, funnily enough, the first episode that I recorded for the season. So I actually recorded this in the summer. I'm super excited to share it with you. I'm speaking with Hayley Solar from Hayley Solar, which is a store, well, actually two stores in the Los Angeles area in the US. I really love Hayley's creation and designs. They're really fun and quirky and beautiful at the same time and I love that she's very focused on stocking small brands mainly female owned and she will tell you where they're designed where they're manufactured so you can shop very consciously which I think is really lovely to see. Hey, it's actually my first US guest, which is also very exciting. I'm planning on inviting guests from all over next season so that we can hear the viewpoints and stories of retailers in other places than here in the UK. With all the third-party marketplace platforms and relatively low shipping costs worldwide, it is now a possibility to ship and supply stores all over the world. So I hope that you find this really interesting. Unfortunately, we had a little bit of a problem with the recording and I've managed to edit out most of the little sound bites that are not completely right but I also managed to lose the last 10 minutes of the recording unfortunately. I decided to still go ahead and publish this episode because I think that it's really interesting and I hope you really enjoy it but it does mean the end of the interview gets cut short a little bit at the end. I hope that you can excuse that and that you still find lots of value we're spending some time with us listening to this episode. I would, of course, love to hear or see where you are tuning in. You can tag me on over on Instagram. I'm at small underscore business underscore collaborative. Perhaps you will catch up in between the Christmas festivities, considering how they might go down this year. Or maybe you will take a complete break and not think about business at all and catch up in January. We're going to have into this episode now. I really hope you enjoy it. Here's my chat with Hayley Solo. Hello, Hayley. Thank you so much for coming on Let's Talk Shop. I'm so excited to speak to with you. Thank you. Me too. It would be great if you can maybe introduce yourself and your business a little bit. Hayley Solar, uh, that is also the name of my uh, store and my label. I'm based in Los Angeles. I started my business about 11 years ago uh, through wholesale manufacturing. 
having all of my pieces made downtown LA using reclaimed fabrics and a lot of hand dyeing, and then expanded to retail about five years ago. And I have a store in a little neighborhood of Eagle Rock in Los Angeles, which is uh, just between Pasadena and Glendale. And I also have another store in Silver Lake, which would be a more sort of trendy kind of rock and roll sort of、uh, neighborhood just between Hollywood and downtown. Amazing. When you started ten years ago, that that sort of thing must have been fairly new in terms of、uh, reclaimed fabrics and stuff. Absolutely. I mean, there was really no conversation about sustainable fashion that I was a part of, or even overhearing. <laughs> When I first started my collection, my biggest issue was being able to source fabrics and manufacture. And to me, I really felt that my value system was based on the fact that I had been sewing my whole life. I started when I was six years old,、mm. and I wanted to be able to be really involved in the manufacturing process and not send product、uh, overseas or to another country where I wasn't able to be involved in overseeing it. And For me to be able to meet the minimums and compete in that market, I had to get creative. And one of the most creative things I could do was to buy dead stock fabric because I could get a shorter run with it, and I could sew all my own samples, and I could partner with the factory on production very much locally. And I was able to、uh, really pivot from piece to piece using those techniques. That's so exciting! And now, of course, everyone—not everyone, but more and more people—pop up. Have you found that it's easier to source fabrics and stuff now? Pre-COVID, yes. Post-COVID,、yeah. no. <laughs> I, I think we all have a. You know, we all look at our lives in 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 forms of pre-COVID and post-COVID. But、yeah. <laughs> there was、uh, for the last, not counting 2020, I found it easier. Not necessarily because there was more available, but because I just had more experience in sourcing and digging. I am a thrift store hunter, number one, and a fabric scout. So really getting to know textile mills and designers that had dead stock and have. Building relationships with people in the fashion district in LA enabled me to constantly be able to source.、Mm-hmm. And now there's been probably problems with like importing. People canceled their orders and didn't make as much, and now it's harder to get fabric. It's more like impossible. Oh, <laughs>、um, I think that things are bouncing back. There's also just the you know this the center of manufacturing in the in the West Coast and the center of my world of manufacturing is based、mm. in downtown LA and having. Shut down all of the factories. Unable to work indoors unless you are working on medical equipment、um, uh, or essentials such as mask making. You were not allowed to have employees. You were not allowed to operate at all. So the factory or the manufacturing business of apparel in LA, which has been suffering for a very long time, is really hanging on by a thread. And I had to completely pivot my business during the shutdown in order to feed myself. So. The the part of my company where I sourced fabrics and hand cut them and hand dyed them and sent them to, to sewers and then also sewed within my shop. Yeah,、um, that completely shut down. So you've just had to sh- think about other ways of keeping your business going. And then, and I would say、I've, I'm sure a lot of small business owners speak to the pivot.、Um, the pivot is not something that you do every two months right now or or every month or every week. It's literally every single day. Yeah. And not only do I have to look out for my business's survival, I also have to look out for the safety of me and my family. And、mm-hmm. my husband is very high risk. He was in a coma a few years ago, and he has a lot of lung damage. And so for us, part of pivoting my business was to say, how can I support both of us so that he doesn't need to go back to his high risk job in customer yeah. service? Yeah. And how can I 
limit our amount of exposure to an environment that might be detrimental. And for me, shopping in an enclosed fabric mill in downtown Los Angeles with everything that our city is going through right now is just not something that feels safe. No, absolutely not. So what have you done and what, what have you bought in more of other people's products then or what, how have you sold that? Pivot was making masks and I'm not sure if you had the same issue over there that we had here, but the availability of masks was really, it was pretty impossible yeah. um, for a very long time. So and by very long, I would say maybe two months, but that two months felt like a very long time. Yeah. So since I we could not have employees, my husband came to the shop with me and we took all of our lots of fabric that we had slated for our spring collection. Uh-huh. And we cut them all up and made prototype masks and tested them on ourselves and on our friends to see what would be the most breathable, which fabrics would work, what's most washable. And him and I hand cut and sewed over 3,000 masks, wow. uh, some of which were donated and most of which were sold. So that was really the first pivot. And at first I was afraid to profit on selling a mask. I, I didn't feel comfortable selling something that even the CDC wasn't sure would be effective. Yeah. So I was gifting them in care packages that I was advertising through my social media, my email list, my friends and saying, you know, please, if you need something, come and get it from me. I will have it delivered to you. And then I would put in these masks as a, as a gift for them supporting me. Yeah. And then people kept saying, can I get another mask? Could I get two more? And then we had to start putting a price tag on them. Yeah. So they, at one point, our local news, I believe it was CBS, did a piece on the fact that we were making masks. And I opened my email while it was airing. And I saw, I'm not even joking, 150 emails that came in within a split second of people wanting these masks. So that became the full-time job, trying to figure out how we could ship them effectively and all of the logistics that come with that. And then as the manufacturers started to catch up with what we were doing, because they have a larger infrastructure where him and I could just sit and cut all and sew all day. And those masks started flooding the market. We started purchasing them from other Los Angeles designers that we know that were also struggling. So uh, Ava Franco is a brand that I worked with at Anthropology for many years. They manufacture in downtown LA and they took some awesome fabrics that they have, all designer prints, and did the same thing. So we purchased from them and were able to resell them. And then we started adding other artists and other brands with a similar philosophy to that mix. And that sort of freed me up a little bit from behind the sewing machine. <laughs> yeah. Before this, did your husband know how to sew? He did. He still doesn't know how. He knows how to cut. I taught him how okay. to cut a perfect square. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say, he got fantastic at ironing and trimming threads. <laughs> <laughs> I have been so impressed. I must say businesses from all over, you know, just completely changing their business to feed their families and keep their businesses alive. I think that it's luckily I I am very I was very motivated by it and I I spent maybe two days at home in bed when we had to shut down on March fifteenth. Yeah. Really upset and really devastated and my life sort of flashed before my eyes and I thought about all of the weddings that I've missed and all of the family gatherings I've missed and all the parties and travels I've missed because I've dedicated my life to my career. Mm. And it was really upsetting and and really shocking I'm sure as it is to 
to, to most people who have a small business. But by that third day, I just woke up and said, I'm fighting like hell. I don't care what it is I have to sell or have to do. Mm. I can't let this business slip through my fingers. I have to stay alive. Yeah. Well, that's really impressive. Before, going back to your background, before you started your brand, what did you do then? Were you in fashion before that? Yeah, I've been in fashion pretty much as, as soon as they would let me. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, sewed and, and designed all the costumes for my high school's theater and dance teams. And I would sell, you know, clothes to, to people at school and I would alter their jeans for them. And then as soon as I graduated high school, I went to design school and got an internship that turned into an assistant designer position mm -hmm. working for an LA-based company called Wendy Hill, which was absolutely adorable. And they sold to Anthropology and Bloomingdale's and Nordstrom, as well as hundreds of other stores. And then from there, I opened a boutique briefly for about a year right before the big recession yeah. uh, that hit the U.S. and quickly closed it. And I got a position working for Anthropology as a selling manager and really learned the corporate side of the business and worked my way up to a store director for a store in Beverly Hills. Yeah. And that's where I really learned about, found a huge passion in retail and learned about managing people and sales goals and all of these, this different side of the business that I um, hadn't really had a lot of experience with yeah. and was able to marry that side to um, my passion for manufacturing and sewing. That's brilliant. Maybe that first business, the recession hit at the right time in you. I mean, it's never a right time for a recession, but it worked out the way it was supposed to work out. I think I was a, you know, a 20 something overconfident young woman who had a lot of, I had a lot of drive, but not a lot of experience. And I was certainly humbled by how large that company was and how demanding the position was and how wonderful my colleagues were. And I actually uh, now employ two of the people I worked with at um, Anthropology, you know, not full-time, they come and go, but uh, it's wonderful to sort of bring those relationships full circle. That's amazing. That's really good. And nowadays, we all talk about sustainability and ethical and greenwashing and all these things. And I know that's something that you, um, you talk about too, because the decisions you made in your business. What do you think is the problem? Because I think greenwashing is really, it's really complicated. <laughs> what is greenwashing and not? <laughs> exactly. I, you know, I think that there's uh, two very big components to sustainable fashion. I think one of them is an environmental impact and mm -hmm. one of them is the human impact. And mm -hmm. for me, I am more focused on the human impact, not to say the environmental impact is not very important, but it is difficult to be focused on both, especially for, you know, one person like me. <laughs> um, and it really comes from a very personal connection. I have really to fabric. And I know that might sound bizarre, but it is a very difficult material to work with. It is constantly shifting. It is constantly moving on you. And it is uh, very, very skilled to be able to control it. And that's just the beginning of learning how to sew something. So when I see very cheap labor uh, for working conditions and really a lack of respect for this product that must be made by human hands, which is one of the very few items we consume that must be made by human hands, it upsets me. Yeah. And I, uh, I actually get you know, chills in my back because I understand how hard this work is. And I really want my customer to understand that uh, the, where the product that I sell comes from. Before COVID, I literally had my sewing machines in my shop 
and my cutting table and my customers could come in and, and see me making it and they saw where it came from. And post-COVID being that there's so many complications right now, I'm, I've sourced different brands from all over the, the U.S. And really my mission until I can get back into that manufacturing cycle is to make sure that on my website, every item is said where it's made, how it's made, what country it's designed in, what country it's produced in. And the consumer can make a choice and shop consciously on what she's purchasing versus me greenwashing what I'm doing and saying these were picked intentionally or 10% goes back to some organization that really it does nothing for in order to excuse my product. Mm -hmm. I'd rather my customer come in and say, the sweater is $60. It is made in China. I prefer to buy the dress that's $150 that was made here. Yeah, I think that's really lovely. You're putting the choice, you know, everyone can be as sustainable or ethical you know they can make their own choices which i think the consumer wants now and, and i think that um it really is a worldwide adaptation of understanding the the how hard this work is and I had a lot of uh, conversation in the sustainable platforms about only by use only by recycled only by thrift and it also upsets me because making clothing is a talent it is an art form and it is a really really good job mm-hmm. that should be valued mm. i completely agree i mean there is other industries where the talent and the skills has just gone because it wasn't nurtured it was shamed in some way or taken away or made discontinued because of machines or something making clothing you you can we can automate cutting we can automate pattern making but to physically be sewing a a garment it has to go through human hands Mm, yeah absolutely and when you uh, have you found how do you select a new brand to stock like do you have a set of criteria what is important when you look at a new brand a very good question i think the majority of my um, home accessories and gifts Mm -hmm. uh, about nine 99% are uh, female-owned businesses. That's a really important value to me. Uh, Also, not to go on a huge feminist rant, but I do think one of the reasons why the apparel business and sewing itself isn't respected is because it has historically predominantly been considered women's work. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, uh, really representing women-owned companies is very, very important. So I, I first look to who owns this, then I look to why are they doing it? Are they doing this because they're trying to make a dollar or are they doing this because they really want to build a a company to support themselves and their community. Mm-hmm. I carry a wonderful brand called Larissa Loden Jewelry and she's based in uh, Minneapolis and she has, I believe, 20 to 30 employees. She's a mother. She uh, works uh, with her community. She represents a lot of uh, diversity in the organization she works with. During the the unrest and um, demonstrations in Minneapolis earlier this year, yeah. she was very involved in cleanup actions for the local businesses and uh, supporting the Black Lives Matter movement through not only her art and her designing of pieces, but also where the profits would go. Yeah. So a brand like that, I will uh, dive into really deeply because I believe not only in their mission, but it's also just really cute stuff at a great price point. And when there's a story, it's so easy to sell it. And, you know, if it's cute and it's well-made and and it has a story. It's a win-win for everyone. Absolutely. And then I have two candle companies that I love. One is PF Candle that was also started by a woman. Uh, she started making candles on Etsy um, and couldn't find work. And the candle company grew and grew and grew. Mm. And now I believe they have about 300 employees. Wow. They're sold at Whole Foods. They're sold at every 
store <laughs> and there's such a solid good candle with a, just a simple amber glass vessel a soy uh, base and they burn uh, for a long time and it's the type of candle that really is a gold standard and it's just a solid good product and I don't care if my neighbor sells them and the one across the street because they're just a, a quality product and it really does support our local economy here. That's amazing. And also that's one thing, you know, when you really care with the brands and you want them to do well, you don't have to be that competitive about who stocks what as anymore because pe- people come to you for a reason. Sort of, I'm glad you, you mentioned that because I think that there's, when I first started this business so long ago, there was a lot of brand competition and zip code protection. And, and I think now I had a, a store the other day reach out to me and say, oh no, I carry the same bandana company you do. And I said, who cares? They're great bandanas. Please sell them. They are an awesome company that gives a lot back to a lot of artistic organizations. We should all be carrying them. And it's my story is about my experience and the way I've put product together. It's it's not going to live or die by the fact that my competition might have a similar item than me. No, that's not how you make your money. You make your money because people want to support you and your brands. But that's the whole purpose of retail is mm. that retail, you know, they talk about retail therapy, this, that, or the other. And to me, retail is not about consumerism. It's not about sell it, buy it, turn the inventory. It's about the experience of, of knowing my customers' names and their families and having a relationship with them and the fun that and energy that it creates when someone comes into your store and browses around. And I think that's something I really learned from anthropology is that they create a space that you feel like you could spend hours in. Mm-hmm. And I want my customers to feel that way, which is why I put my name on my store. I'm incredibly embarrassed about it because it feels very narcissistic, but um, <laughs> it was some great business advice I got was, you know, people come to your store because they want to feel like they're going into your home. And that's yeah. exactly how I want them to feel. And with my name on my store and I say, I'm Haley to my customer, they instantly know, oh, I feel welcome here. And they should know my first and last name. And probably too many of them have my cell phone number. (laughs) But I love it because it's all about making them feel really, really uh, appreciated, which they are. Yeah. Do you think that this whole thing with COVID has kind of reinforced, like here in the UK, I feel like it's really reinforced that you know, we have to support our local businesses. Shopping small is more important than ever and supporting smaller brands is more important than ever. 100%. I mean, I would not have made it through the first month, maybe even two months, probably even now, if it wasn't for the fact that I had people reaching out to me that I even went to high school with mm. and 37 years old, so it was a while ago, uh, <laughs> saying, what, what can I buy? I need a gift. I, I've got 20 bucks to spend on a present you know, is there anything in your store? Yeah. And that amount of community support is really what pushed me through. And I think what's pushing a lot of businesses through. I know I think twice before I'm going to make a big meal at home versus going out. I'm like, you know what? Let me go out. Let me go see my friend's restaurant. And I can't go on vacation. There's not much to do. So, uh, you know, if you have a couple extra bucks and putting it back into your community to create an experience and support them, it's, it's just so important. And I'm, really, really feel that support in my neighborhood. That's lovely. And I, I, I feel like it's so nice that it's the same, you know, both here and in the US, because they're quite different markets that, that it's sort of brought out. It's a positive that has come out of a very difficult situation. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. 
one of the things I, I, I think I, I don't know if I said it out loud, but I certainly said it to myself was that when all of this shutdown happened and I, you know, you see all these news stories about people behaving badly and, you know, the conversation becomes like, oh, people are terrible. People are terrible. My, my response to that is I've never seen people be so great. Yes. Um, it's really, really wonderful. Of course, there's still terrible out there, but there's yeah. a lot of really good. Absolutely. Well, I felt there has been so many good actions done, so many brilliant initiatives. And I think that we are good. People are, I don't want to say better people because you're the same person, but you know, people have their awareness levels, our awareness levels has been raised. I mean, I certainly was not, you know, keeping my eyes open to what was going around around the Black Lives Matter movement enough before all of everything that has happened over the last year happened. I mean, I think that's what happens when the world stops and we all sort of are forced to get off of our hamster wheels and look around us and say, wait a minute, um, something is really wrong here. I know personally that the amount of social media awareness has really educated me on a lot of sort of wrong ideas I had about, Mm -hmm. you know, not discussing race and not going out of my way uh, to support a person of color, which is I now know is just such a backwards way of thinking and really learning that like as a white woman, I have sort of been ingrained in me to not use the word black as if it was an offensive word. And Mm -hmm. I am shaking my head at myself that I ever thought that and, and now I'm really trying to be more aware and create more opportunity for uh, black makers, especially black women, and take risks on product and say, you know, this this might be something that I might not have carried before, but this is a black woman owned business. And Mm. she deserves for me to take a shot and say, let me sell this. And every brand that I've brought in in order to take the 15% pledge has been very successful. So shame on me for not doing it before. (laughs) Well, yes. I mean, it's amazing that. Can you tell us, for those who doesn't know what the 15% pledge is, can you share what that means? Pledge uh, is, it's a social media movement. And forgive me, I am completely blanking on the woman who started it. Uh, She began really asking uh, major retailers to stock 15% of their goods with Black-owned businesses to represent 15% of the population in the United States. And that is a very common sense thing that we all should have thought of before when we talk about inclusion and diversity, which is not a new conversation. So the challenge is, it it is a challenge because there's a few things that that hold me back. Certainly as a white person is that I don't want to offend a brand by asking what color are they? And that can be difficult and social media has been really helpful, especially being able to ask friends and other brands, do you know of any black owned brands that you would suggest to me? And really like pooling, you know, their experience to be able to pass over different brands that I can look into. And I know some major retailers have accepted it. I know, I think Sephora was the first one. Mm -hmm. And there really is no time limit on this movement. It is a a push to reach that 15% pledge as quickly as you can. I think it's so good. It's actually something, so when COVID hit, I started recording more podcast episodes. I really felt like a need to talk to people about what was going on in their businesses. So I just did extra many podcast episodes. And and then naturally when the Black Lives Matter movement happened and everything was highlighted like that, that's obviously something we talked a lot about as well. And I looked up the census here in the UK and, you know, spoke to some people about well if I, I can't actually remember if it was 11 or 13 percent of the UK populations are black why can you not make 11 or 13 percent of your 
suppliers black you know similarly to big businesses having say working towards having 50% men 50% women like it shouldn't be shameful to talk about these things and I I found that it's a lot easier than I would have thought Mm. like I said by pooling you know my community of, of shoppers and brands it's actually been not not a difficult thing (laughs) yeah well I'm glad I'm glad and I think you know you probably discovered some amazing brands that way and I think the the fact of the matter is is that and I know this is part of the conversation around uh, 15% pledges and 15% because we need we've got a, a lot of damage that needs to be reversed. Mm-hmm. And 15% really should be the minimum. Yeah. You don't have to stop there. If you like a brand, you should, it shouldn't, you know, but once you got to 15%, you can just keep going. You need just to just open, I guess we all just need to open our eyes and, and make active choices. So apart from, you know, sourcing from local brands and, you know, made in the US brands, do you, I've seen that you also stock some UK brands, or at least the completest I've seen. How did that come about? Uh, there is a marketplace called FAIR, F-A-I-R-E. I'm sure you've discussed them. And when they first came into my view uh, about a year and a half ago, think I didn't sleep for like three days. (laughs) 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 Just obsessively combing through so much inventory and really trying to find product that stood out to me as unique and interesting and something that I would absolutely covet and something that would make my store really bright and pretty. And I just thought the completest was um, high quality, beautiful artwork. And I had never carried stationery before. And I thought, let me just bring in a few pieces. At the very least, it'll make the tabletop look pretty. And I had no idea that they had a huge following because I kept getting emails and calls asking for a lot of certain styles from that brand specifically. More than any other brand I carry, I get calls looking for the completest. It's really interesting. I would imagine most of it is because, you know, people are a fan of the brand, but it ships from overseas. So to see someone in the US that carries it, you know, I get, they pick up the phone and say, can you ship to me here or there? I'm looking for the shadow brush number one planner. And so that's, that's really fun. And so I just, I really can't keep it in stock. That's great to hear. I I love their business. (laughs) I think they're so pretty. They do so many things. Uh, And Yana is just, so lovely and I think it's so fitting with the other things that you carry too. I love it and I actually just adapted um, their gift wrap as our standard store gift wrap as our sort of statement. (laughs) Oh that's so nice. (laughs) Yeah so the signature gift wrap is now completest as well. (laughs) Oh that's amazing and have you found any do you stock any other UK brands? I don't believe I do actually. I would say I have a brand from as far as, you know, international brands, I think I only have a brand from Vancouver, BC, and then um, an Australian brand called Laura Bird that I just picked up. And everything else is is US. I try to be as local as possible just for the environmental impact of, <laughs> of that. But the completest was something that uh, I, I really said, okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so cute. <laughs> yeah, and that's, I mean, I... It's nice if that not, you know, if it's not everywhere in the US too, so that people are really coming to you to buy it in the US. That's nice because you can yeah. import a bigger quantity and then people can buy it locally. Exactly. And it does, it does ship very well packed and very small. So I feel the, 
carbon footprint is, is pretty small compared to a lot of other companies. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think that they are very conscious about, you know, things like that too. So that's good. <laughs> so when you, I don't know how it's been in uh, LA, but you know, when shops opened up here, there was lots of rules they had to adhere to and they have mm-hmm. like till screens, like these kind of acrylic or glass things. And how is it in LA? Unfortunately, right now the US is really disjointed as far as a single message. I'll try not to get too political, but I'm sure everyone knows what I mean. (laughs) Um, And so because everything, really the response to COVID has been left to a state by state basis. And you can imagine that that would get incredibly confusing, incredibly complicated and incredibly expensive for every uh, state governor to come up with their own action plan to deal with this virus instead of one singular message that was supported wholeheartedly by a very large country. So I think that California is struggling just like every other state to create a cohesive message. And I know restaurants have obviously more restrictions than retail. Retail, the main restrictions are the occupancy needs to be cut in half, which I think is, again, it doesn't, it's not a, a a great message because I have two stores. One of my stores is very large and very open. So half occupancy is about 35 people, which I would feel incredibly uncomfortable having in one space. And my other store, half occupancy, is about nine people, which I would still feel uncomfortable with. So we take the regulations and then we make our own adaptations for what feels comfortable for ourselves and our employees. For me, a maximum of four people in my store is what makes me feel comfortable, making sure to distribute hand sanitizer, really enforce that. I know you're wearing a mask when you come in, but that mask stays above your nose and over your mouth the entire time. Our fitting rooms are really curtains, so they're nice and open and breathable. And the rule is if you try a garment on, we set it aside for 24 hours before it goes back onto the floor. And then the rest of it is really what makes me and what makes my employees feel comfortable. And if a customer comes in the store and they're standing too close to you, they're you know, maybe talking too much. They maybe have children that are grabbing at things. We really practice a lot of ways to sort of politely ask them to give you a little more space. And one of the tactics is, especially because I have a close relationship with a lot of customers, is to really say, you know, if we start catching up about their day to say, let's walk out outside and let's chat outside because oh, that's um, a good idea. yeah and I think they and a lot of times they go oh of course yes I feel more comfortable doing that too and then we yeah. can stand in front of the store and have a longer chat versus spending an hour indoors so yeah. there's those types of things the regulations are really mostly about employee break rooms and hand washing there's not much for retail so it really is has been um, a case-by-case basis I know some for a while I was appointment only And then I was one customer at a time. Now I'm four at a time, but I also have the opportunity for a customer to book a private appointment so they can shop solo just with me. And then I know a lot of stores that have been cleared to open, but they just are not comfortable doing it. So they're still doing online or curbside pickup. It's interesting that they haven't. So here in the UK, you had to implement like a one-way system. So you have like arrows on the floor, like lots of stores have those floor vinyls and stuff. Mm -hmm. In restaurants, they uh, implement that uh, for pickup. If you're walking into a restaurant, you have to follow the arrows in. And of course, for outdoor seating, the tables have to be six feet apart. If they are any closer than that, I believe they have to have the plexiglass. Don't quote me on that because I'm not a restaurant owner. Um, <laughs> but for, for retail, because it really is a 
small retail, it really is a, a lower risk, much less regulations. And as I say, everyone's sort of going by what makes them comfortable. You are not allowed to open retail if you are in a mall. Okay. That's one of the restrictions. If you're open, if you're in a mall, then uh, we are not cleared to open. But if you're freestanding, then it's okay. Okay. And uh, I suppose it's just going to be, I mean, here they change regulations all the time and stuff. I'm guessing it's going to be the same in the US. So it's something we're going to have to deal with. Flexibility. I know when we were cleared to open retail, we were told on, I believe, a Thursday that we could open on a Friday. Oh, <laughs> well, that's not very helpful. Uh, yeah, so the, the changes, they happen quickly and uh, you start to feel a little bit of whiplash, but that's okay. You know, we're all doing the best we can. Yeah. So you just go with it. And customers seem so flexible. They understand what we're going through. So if I have to say one day... Uh, especially around 4th of July, and I will probably end up doing the same thing for a couple of weeks after um, Labor Day weekend, uh, yeah. which is this Monday. I may have to go back to one person at a time because we typically see a case surge around those holidays. And um, yes. I would predict there would be. So um, to protect my customers and my family, it, it, it may become one customer at a time for a couple of weeks after that again. And, mm. you know, sometimes people kind of go, oh, they roll their eyes a little, but I just politely explain it's not about you, it's about me. Mm. No offense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think in general, people have been very understanding and, you mm -hmm. know, it's almost become like the new normal in a way to stand outside and wait your turn <laughs> and all that. I mean, most people don't get offended. They actually... I would say most of the time people say thank you. Mm. You know, if I, I had someone trying to show me something on a cell phone yesterday in my store and I, and I backed up a few feet and at first I felt, Oh, I hope I didn't just offend him. And he immediately apologized. He said, I'm sorry, six feet. You're right. And he goes, thank you for doing that. And I said, of course. And we just moved on with the conversation. Yeah. Because it's easy for everyone to forget. Mm -hmm. Of course, we all need a reminder. Yeah. And um, when you, uh, do you get a lot of brands approach you about being stocked in your store? If you source it on fair, you, I'm guessing you also source other ways. Different ways. I, I would say I don't get as many as I really would have expected being that I was on the wholesale side and how many stores I bugged like crazy to please <laughs> look at my line. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't know if it's just 2020 or if it's, if the market has changed a bit, but I don't really get a lot of inquiries. I actually find it sometimes it's harder to, to beat down a brand to get them to return my emails. Um. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. <laughs> yeah. Does that surprise I mean, you? It does. As a business person, you know, I'm, I'm quite a hustler. So uh, it does <laughs> shock me sometimes when I'm like, hey, I'm trying to, I'm trying to buy your brand. I want to give you money. <laughs> yes. Here's money, please. Um, you know, and I, I think it's also because I do carry so many small brands. They don't have the necessarily the experience in wholesale. So sometimes they're a little trepidatious about a brand contacting them and are their margins going to be right? And I mean, mm -hmm. I'm sure you've discussed this a lot in wholesale. The, um, there can be a lot of fear going into wholesale saying, well, if I just sold it at retail uh, or I sold my product at retail, I can make more money than if I sell it at wholesale. And that brand doesn't have enough experience to realize how wholesale can really transform their business and scale it. So yeah. when I'm looking at a small brand or a small jewelry maker, they might sort of respond with a couple of question marks when I say, um, do you do wholesale? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's nice that you contact brands that don't necessarily advertise that that's something they do, but you, you really go for what you like. Because sometimes you end up, you know, in a complicated conversation because then it becomes really how do I do wholesale and what is Keystone? And, you know, sometimes that develops into a great mentoring relationship with a brand. And yeah. the, the ones that I've had a lot of success 
with are the ones that ask those questions and say, oh, how do you expect, how do you think I should ship? And should I approach other stores? And what should my margins be? And I can say, well, this is from my experience, what I would do, you know, you take this information and do with it what you want. And the ones that really ask those questions tend to be the ones I start seeing at my competition and I start really seeing their their following grow and their business grow. Yeah, but then you're invested. So you're also happy for them to grow. It's so much fun. I I think that all you have to do to be sell your brand is to be curious when the opportunities come up. 100%. 100%. And I would, I'd, I would say that I never heard it put that way. Curious. I like that a lot. <laughs> yeah. I always say, say selling is being curious because you want to learn as much as possible about your customer, right? So you want to ask them questions. You want to get them talking. 100%. I, every time a brand has contacted me and say, how do I get into wholesale? Or even a friend saying how, you know, when I did wholesale, how are you in stores? I would always say, don't try to make an appointment selling. Try to make an appointment a fact finding and say, mm. I, I don't need to come to your store and bother your buyer for an hour on the line that they're unsure of. But would you mind if I pop in and just ask you and your staff what you think of this? And mm-hmm. if you do that to enough stores, you will end up with orders. Because and not only that, you're going to end up with so much information about, well, the price point isn't right. But you know who would be a great fit is this store down the road and up a few blocks. Yeah. Or maybe if you offered the style in a different color. And you can take all of that and really, really grow. Absolutely. I think, and that's really exciting. And it's, I I guess you don't want to give up on opportunities that come your way. You need to be proactive and sell your stuff. When I did wholesale, the best, the the best marketing strategy, and trust me, I tried everything, was (laughs) to just get into a store. And it didn't even matter how small the order was, because if they take a picture and they put it on Instagram or they share it in their email list, another retailer is watching. And that yeah. other retail will, re- retailer will say, oh, well, my competition is selling this. Maybe I should look at it. And I love that. Growing and growing and growing because people really do look at their peers as for direction and buying. They really do. Mm. And it's such social proof that, you know, maybe the margins could work for that brand. Maybe they can supply shops if, if they know one of their competitors does it. And then I lost the final bit of the recording and I'm so sorry about that. But you can find out more, um, support Haley and her business on HaleySolar.com and Haley Solar on Instagram. And of course, I will add all that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much, Haley, And thank you so much to all of you who are listening week in, week out to this podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it. I certainly enjoy speaking with Haley, And hopefully once we can travel again, once we get past this very challenging year and perhaps another challenging spring, I can actually visit Haley's store in person one day. If you are listening on the day that this is published or on the week that this is published, I hope that you have a wonderful Christmas and a wonderful new year and I hope that you will tune back in on the 4th of January when the podcast returns. Thank you so much and I hope you have a lovely couple of weeks. Take care. Thank you for listening.